Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. We've got a three-part show today. I'll start with my thoughts on the Yates Report on abuse in the NWSL. Then our interview guest today is former U.S. men's national team star Jermaine Jones. Then we'll start a new 10-minute interview called Book Talk, this time with Joshua Cloak, the author of The Voyagers on the Canadian men's national team. Before we get going, you can sign up free or paid for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're just starting year two, and I've got big plans to cover men's and women's World Cups in the next 12 months. That's grantwall.com. This is an audio dispatch from London, England, where I just arrived here on Wednesday morning. I'm recording this just before noon. And obviously the original reason for me coming here was to cover the big friendly between England, the European champion, and the U.S. women's national team, the World Cup champion, on Friday. I'm still going to do that. It's going to have a sold-out Wembley Stadium, more than 90,000 people, and it's a big game, big occasion. And yet, obviously, the most important thing right now, this week, is the Yates Report, which came out on Monday, and goes into devastating detail on the systematic abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, sexual coercion of players in the NWSL across teams across the league over the years. And um, I just finished reading the report and really didn't want to say anything publicly until now because uh, I wanted to read the report in its entirety first. And I encourage strongly everyone to read the report because it communicates in so much detail. And it's hard to read. And there's going to be moments where, I'll warn you, you will um, sometimes not want to continue reading. And it's going to be really troubling for you to read some of this stuff. But I think it is very important. And I would also say, it's I've seen it described as a 319-page report. It is including footnotes, but it's 172 pages of writing and reports. Um, and so don't be afraid by the page number here. I, I just think it's tremendously important to read it. I would suggest starting with the executive summary uh, at the start and then actually reading then the recommendations from the Yates report. Sally Yates, the former Deputy Attorney General of the United States, independent investigation hired by U.S. Soccer after the stories in The Athletic and The Washington Post about NWSL abusive coaches came out a year ago. Um, and after you read the recommendations at the end, I would then suggest you read the rest of it, the the report in the, the middle, which focuses on three coaches in particular, Paul Riley, Rory Dames, and Christy Holly. And first off, just want to say I have tremendous admiration for the bravery of the players who spoke to Sally Yates and her team for this report. It took a lot of courage. They these players have been through so much, as you can tell when you read it. It's it's awful. And and yet they told their stories. And uh, you just feel for them. You're heartbroken that they were not protected. And you can only hope that this will cause players to be protected better 
protected totally in the future. I want to give Sally Yates a lot of credit because the report itself is so well reported, vetted, and clearly written and in total detail. Sally Yates has so much credibility and, and you can feel it in these pages as you read it. And here's someone coming in from the outside, not a soccer person, speaking truth. Painful truth, but truth that needs to be out there. We had seen a lot of these stories already reported publicly, especially Paul Riley and Rory Dames, the Christy Holly abusive behavior. We had not, so I guess that is new. Um, it's all awful, and it's representative of a culture that Yates is very clear to say begins in youth soccer. This report is about the NWSL. It's not about youth soccer. Yates is very clear saying there's plenty of other stuff going on in youth soccer that needs to be investigated as well, and we'll see if that gets done. But this report is essential reading. It's, um, it's about the abuse of coaches. Some of this stuff to me seems like it, these coaches you know, should be behind bars for things they've done to their players. And then there's a lot too about enablers who were to some degree aware of what was going on here and didn't do their job to protect players. And that includes NWSL owners like Merritt Paulson, Arnhem Whistler in particular. Steve Mallet could have done more. Other owners could have done more, a lot more. U.S. soccer officials, obviously U.S. soccer oversaw the NWSL for a long time. U.S. soccer officials who were aware of what was going on, or at least that investigations were taking place. Dan Flynn, Sunil Gulati, Lydia Walke, the lawyer, Lisa Levine, NWSL lawyer. I come away from this thinking these lawyers didn't do the right thing. It was all about cover your ass. All of these teams that Yates calls out for not participating fully in the investigation, whether it was Portland or Louisville. Some people like former commissioner Jeff Plush who did not even respond. And so yeah, I'm here in England for this game and I'll look forward to the game on Friday, but this report and Everything in it, how it's affected the players, is, is quite rightly the main topic of discussion. Yesterday, Becky Sauerbrunn, captain of the U.S. Women's National Team, Alana Cook spoke to media, answered questions I thought were speaking with total clarity. Sauerbrunn wants people gone who gone gone as she put it who were enablers so it's something we knew was coming this report it's probably even more than people were expecting and now it's about what you do going forward and i hope the sally recommendations 
get followed by U.S. Soccer, by the NWSL. And I'm with Becky Sauerbrunn. She's so strong in what she said on Tuesday. And if she thinks people should be gone, gone, they should be gone, gone. That includes the owner of the team she plays for in the NWSL. So it's going to be an ongoing story, but how people handle it and act and make this system better, that hard work, there's so much to come. Uh, congratulations again, uh, and thank you to Meg Lenahan, especially at The Athletic, Molly Hensley-Clancy at The Washington Post for the essential reporting they've done. But uh, those are my thoughts for right now, having read the Yates report, and I hope you do too. Now, here's my interview with Jermaine Jones. Our guest now is Jermaine Jones. He starred in the 2014 World Cup for the U.S. men's national team and had a 19-year pro playing career in Europe and MLS. He's now an assistant coach for the U.S. under-19 men's national team, the holder of a UEFA pro coaching license and a TV analyst. He's also starting a mentorship program with young players and coaches. And he'll be working in media at the World Cup in Qatar. Jermaine, it's great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, man. How are you? Let's start with that. How are you? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been really a while. Um, I'm doing good. I'm just being around, like, you know, just doing my things, working on stuff, trying to get stuff running and focusing on the on the coaching side. You know, it's um it's been a journey and um, but it's it's coming there. Congratulations on your role as an assistant with the under-19 men's national team. How did that come about? Um, you know, we, we were talking about it and I saw the guys like Brian and uh, Ernie Stewart. I saw them at the games when I did TV work for ESPN. We just chatted a little bit and what's going on in life. And I said, yeah, I'm doing my, my coaching badges and I'm, I'm looking in to do TV, but my main point is I want to coach. And then so they, they asked me if I would be interested. So I was running for the 19th job and, 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 and they, at the end, they made the decision to give it to the head coach, Marco, what was good for me because he had more experience and I was good to, you know, be his assistant and, and can see and learn from him. And then the opposite, yeah, they, they told me that at one point they would give me the 16th. So still open job. So we will see. Well, it's, it's cool to see you getting into coaching. You obviously have a tremendous amount of experience in this sport. What have you done so far in your role with U.S. soccer? What teams have you worked with, uh, places you've gone? You know, um, I've been most of the time at the U19s in, um, because that's my main group. But then um, I went to Texas, Frisco, the first time to go on a showcase and just watch games. And, um, and I was ex yeah, excited about it because um, just to see how much talent you have in this, in this age groups and in general, if you, if you go lower down with our groups, and you see the players, it's, 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 it's unbelievable how much talent we have in this country. And um, it's just um, now um, for me, excited to work with these young groups, you know, with these young men and um, give back my experience, what I had over the years. How much time do you spend in this coaching role with U.S. soccer? Um, I'm just fresh. So I would say like not even a year, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's a lot of work and, um, you know, I'm learning for myself. Um, you know, I guess there's so much behind it. Like a lot of times you, you think like, oh, I'm coming back from a playing career and it's, it's easy to go out there and just do, you know, whatever I knew from the field, but it's the opposite, you know, and, 
you 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 dig in, you learn about you know philosophies, identity identities, and um, how you can create your own you know vision on the game. So in 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 US soccer helped me with that um, to give me a chance to be with the 19s. I don't know how many listeners to this show are aware of what goes into getting a UEFA Pro coaching license. It's really involved. What all did you have to do to earn that? Yeah, I started like straight after I retired because um, I had conversation with people from MLS and USL, you know, and I, and I told everybody I want to coach at one point, but um, I would dig in now and, and start with my coaching badges. And um, I started with my US Soccer B and, and I think when I look back like four years ago, I started with everything and um, yeah, it's going back to school. You, I had to go back then, especially with the, the UEFA license, I had to fly to Northern Ireland back and forth and stay there for weeks and, and do training and all that stuff. But it was good because I enjoyed it because I saw a lot of ex-players who I played against and, um, you know, in, in, in all that locker room talks and, and, and going back, that that pushed me more more back into, oh, I want to do this and and that's my calling, you know, the player management side on, on coaching. and but, it, but yeah, you're going back to, you're digging into really learning the system on a different view on, on the game. Did you have to do some, like one big project, like a big written project for your UA for Pro license? Yeah, you have to do it already with the BNA. So you're going mm-hmm. back and you have tasks that you have to um, put to the table. And um, yeah, the UEFA one was then too. We had uh, one was to analyst, uh, analyze the game Paris against Man City, what was actually a good one. And um, and then there's other tasks like you know you have to do your own training sessions you have to you know, there's there's a lot of stuff you have to do, but it's everything is related to soccer so it's it's not that difficult you know and um, I said for me the moment when I stepped into this I said you know what I want to learn is I want to learn to do all the powerpoints all that stuff because as as players you, you're not focused on that you know so I wanted to know what's behind it behind the soccer world in coaching because we just seen the front part uh, it's a little bit coaching on the field but there's so much more behind it so I wanted to dig in learn all that side because I knew the side on the field that would be easy for me because I've been there you know for 19 years and um and, and I did it day in day out so but I wanted to know how you know how you set up training sessions how you you know you write your own philosophy on the game like all that stuff so in it was a journey but um Finally, I have my pro license and I'm ready to go. If I were to ask you, what's your coaching philosophy and how do you want your teams to play? What would you say? You know, a lot of times people would think that I'll come down and say, I want to be aggressive and all that stuff, but it's complete the opposite. You know, I want to control the game. You know, we we have um, counter pressing. I'm, I'm a person who focuses on three zone, you know, in the game and as the zone one, zone two, and zone three. And you have to transition between that. But, um, yeah, I would say I want to control the game. I want to dictate. And um, in 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 the in special zone three, when we when we lose the ball, I want to you know counter press. And why is it? Do you think I've always wondered this? Like the NBA, there's no such thing as coaching licenses, but at elite level soccer, they require them, and and a lot goes into it. Why do you think soccer is different from the NBA? You know, I you know I don't want to compare. Everybody is their own business. But I can say this, um, in the first place, I was thinking when I retired, that will be easy coaching, and, um, but it's not. And I, I, I always say that people should go to that journey of, you know, doing their license and, and finish up their license, and especially the highest one. Just It's a journey, you know, the context you see again, you, the people you meet, the stuff you learn, 
It's, it's, it's just helps you. It's not against anything. It's just helping you to be ready for then for that, for that first job. I had offers in talks with people when I retired in, um, and I just had my UEFA A license, but I'll be honest, I was not ready because I, I, I was ready to go on the field, but we'll have to need an assistant who runs everything. And, um, that's something I don't want to know that that's not what I want. So I want, if I'm in charge, I want, you know, give the people the ideas and the philosophies, what I said, that they understand exactly. And I'm on the page to know, okay, that's what I, you know, that's what I want to play. That's what I'm giving out to all other people instead. Like I'm just a face and somebody else has to run everything because I have no idea. In your playing career, you played at the highest levels in the world cup, in the UEFA champions league, where do you want to go with coaching? Do you want to go to those high levels? You know, um, you always reach for the highest, you know, and, um, but I'm realistic. And, um, and I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm a young coach. I'm just starting. And, um, but yeah, my goals are, of course, is to, you know, at one point to coach a, a top team in a top league or in a top um, uh, environment. So, but yeah, realistic right now is just like step by step seeing what comes as next in, in, in just learning, take it as a journey. Now you also are doing a mentorship program among other things with young players and, and coaches. Uh, could you explain a little bit more about what that is about? Yeah. So, um, you know, w- when I started coaching, especially with the U19s, um, I saw that there's a lot of kids in the system who relate to the same lifestyle, the same background where I came from, you know, in, um, and sometimes the, we don't understand them, you know. And, and then I saw in, in this when I stepped in that a lot of the kids, they're, they're straight, put their hands kind of like, you know, oh, he's like he's somebody like us, you know. And, and I connected straight with them and, and I, I became the, the, the assistant coach, but then maybe I would say like a big brother too. And, um, and I said, hey, how can I, you know, create something where – you know, I can be more powerful in support them in making right decisions with agents when they pick clubs and all that stuff. Because I want to coach, I don't want to be a manager or like an agent. So I say, like, how can I do that in a, in a mentorship program with something? When I looked into it, I was like, oh, that's interesting because you can be like the coach, the mentor, the big brother, you know. So in, in that was something I looked more in and, and, and now I'm working on it to get it done. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Obviously, we saw you on ESPN during World Cup qualifying, doing TV analyst work. We've seen you on other TV platforms. Uh, which do you enjoy more, coaching or media? Oh, I, mean, I made it pretty clear from the beginning. I said to everybody, um, I, I want to coach. So I like this this part on coaching, this this player management and you know, sitting in the room, cutting games. In doing all that stuff. I love TV too. Don't get it wrong. It's, it's really enjoyable and, you know, and, and it's still connected to the game. So I can still cut games, you know, most of the time I did US soccer games. So I, I know the players, I know the, the, the philosophy of Craig Berhalter and the idea he wants to play. So it's, it's interesting too. So I, I would say they're pretty, 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 pretty close to each other, but, um, but yeah, being on the field, is, it's, it's more my world. So I know you're doing some work for U.S. soccer now, so I'm not sure how comfortable you are being asked about the senior national team, but I'll ask anyway. How are you feeling about the U.S. men's national team right now with the World Cup starting in November? 
you know, I'm I'm out there, so I I will anyways talk about them because I call in games of them <laughs> in, in, at the World Cup. But um, no, I feel really comfortable to talk about it because um, you know, I I believe in that group and um, that's a young group and um, we watching games now, Saudi Arabia or Japan. We all know it's it's not the easiest game, especially now before the World Cup. Players are maybe careful because of injuries, and we that's always in your mind. People have to understand that, especially if you're coming that close to the World Cup. It doesn't matter if you play for your club or for the country. People are are, are careful, and um, but I think you will see a complete different face at the World Cup. Um, I think the the team is young, you know, with Craig Berhalter. I think we have the right coach. He he understands the philosophy of your soccer. You know, he he adds his own thoughts into the game, and and um, I think what what you can see is that we over the the period of qualification games that I would say the game we love is if we can sit and break. We maybe not the team who like to control the game, but um, but you can see the games when we played against Jamaica or Costa Rica, and we had to do the game. We we struggled a little bit, but then at the games like Mexico, where Mexico is maybe making a game, and we can just break on them it's 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 something what the young group maybe likes more but i'm i feel comfortable that they're going into this world cup in in will crush it and one question i've had at times with this u.s team is is there a jermaine jones on this team a guy who puts some fear into opposing teams do you think there is and who is it you know um i want to compare myself that there's somebody else like me because i don't believe there's somebody with the personality like me. And that's not, you know, I don't want to say something bad about people, but I think the closest one you can say is Weston, who is coming close to that. Um, but yeah, you have a lot of talent. There's a, the group is, it's packed with good, good players. And maybe they're not like uh, a Jim and Jones, but they have different qualities. And, you know, and um, yeah, sometimes I always say, we had this conversation, I think with uh, Hercules Gomez and Casey Keller and Seba on, on set that we said, um, you know, that sometimes you need somebody who just steps in and in 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 and gives that little bit that woo going through the group, you know, because people are like, oh, okay, he's there, you know. So and um but they're still a young group, so you never know how they're, you know, um, build it up. Um but you know, I'm I'm looking forward and it, I think it will be in a good World Cup for them. And what sort of media are you gonna be doing? Has that been announced yet in Qatar? Um, yeah, I will be definitely on set and, um, and calling us games for sure. <laughs> nice. I'm looking forward to that. When, when, and whenever we find out who that's for, that's awesome news. Great to hear. I'm going to be in Qatar myself as long as I get my clearance to get into the country, which fingers crossed. And are there any U S players that you would like to see get more playing time with the national team than they are right now? Um, you know, I think that, the, the guys already, when I look at Adam, um, is doing a good job now in Leeds. I think he's, he's, you know, he's the heart of this team. You know, and, uh, if he, if he's on hundred percent, I think he can dictate the team in, in a positive way in, in the front and in the back. Then, yeah, you have all the big guys playing, you know, I think you have to look now what's with Christian with Chelsea. If he's um, getting time over there, you know, to get him happy for the World Cup, you know, then I think there's a, um, Picot, Poikot, what's his name in in Union Berlin? Yeah, Jordan Pifak. Pifak, yeah, he's um he I think he's he's somebody we we should have you know uh, on our red radar because of that what he's doing over there you know in um, his first place with the 
Union Berlin in, in the Bundesliga and he scores and he's playing good. So I think that's somebody I think uh, would be interesting to see at the first team. Most of these young U.S. players have not played in a World Cup before. You have played in a World Cup. What advice would you give to these young U.S. players right now? I would say just suck it in, you know, take every game as your final game. It's it's the biggest tournament. It's the biggest party in the world. And, and you are part of it. So it's um, that's something I, I always told me, you know, that it's not the people just in the stadium. It's millions of people watching you play, you know, and you just can see the, the videos when you see the the fans back home, you know, with the how they party everywhere and they have like the, the events out there in the public viewings and all that stuff that as a player, you have to know. And, and then hey, come on, like you, you represent your country in front of millions of people. So there's nothing better. So in, in at the end, it's a game, you know, go out, enjoy it, have fun with it. You better with the best. And if you want the best stage, now you got the best stage and now it's on you. I can't believe it's been eight years since you played in the 2014 World Cup. And that was the last time the U.S. men have played in a World Cup. Uh, what are the things that stand out the most in your memory of your experience of that 2014 World Cup? You know, it was, I would say it was everything. You know, the moment you travel over to Brazil and, you know, you, you build this brotherhood with your teammates, you know, because, you know, it's just on you. The guys who are in the bus, the guys who are traveling now over to Brazil at the time, it's on you. You know, people ranked us that we not we come out of the group and all that stuff. And, and you like, okay, let's let's build something. Let's let's be strong. Focus on the first game, and um, and see where we can go. You know, there was a lot of talks behind. You know, the team is not good enough. You like this, this, and and that built like a brotherhood. You know, and I think that was something I I loved and. Still talking with a lot of guys, you know, it's what you said. It's crazy. If you look back, it's eight years ago, you know, and, and we're getting so old so fast. It's, it's, it's <laughs> you know, hey, sometimes I feel like I can play again, but then I go on the field with the with the 19s, you know, and I feel like, oh, my God, my legs are gone. But um, but yeah, it's it's you know, it's it's something you look back in. And I just enjoyed this whole World Cup, you know, because of my kids were there. I had the, the chance to play a World Cup. In my career, you know, what I said before, I, I had the blessing to, you know, in to, to score a goal. So, and that's all memories um, in, in, in people who don't understand how quick, just because of one World Cup, everything can change in your life. You know, people recognize you and the soccer in general grew so much in this country since that World Cup. And, um, and that's something we should all, um, you know, be excited for to this World Cup now to support the team, you know, in and help the team to come as far as possible because um, it's just a develop for our own country to get better in soccer. Last week I was in Spain and did an interview with Yunus Musa, who has chosen to play for the United States. He could have played for England or Italy or Ghana. Uh, you chose to play for the United States. You were eligible to play for Germany. Um, and Yunus and I got to talking about how he sort of tapped into his American side even more once he started, once he chose to play for the United States. And I, I now that I think about it, feel like you might have done the same thing. Do you feel like you tapped into your American side at the time you were playing and you know, even until today a lot more once you chose to play for the U.S.? 
No, he's right. I think you at one point you really look in, you know, I don't know his background, but for me it was that I grew up with the, with a German mom in Germany. So I had I had roots in America, but I don't really knew where my roots are. And um and if you would see me in 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 um, in Germany, people would say I'm I'm not a German kid, you know, I'm I'm look more like an American kid, African American kid. So when I had the chance and I had the conversation with Bob Bradley, I always told him, I said, look, um, I've been not in touch with my dad for a long time. And if this can help me to come back in touch with him because he's in the state somewhere. And I, you know, my, I know my roots are laying somewhere in Mississippi. And, um, and I would like to play for this country and I will put everything down to, you know, represent this country the best way I can. And um, at the time, I think I was one of the highest players. I played Champions League every year and, you know, and I make the switch and, um, and, and I don't look back and, you know, I look back now with a smile and for me it was the right decision to do it because, um, you know, I was one of the first or at least oh, I think well, I was the first one who switched countries to go and play for the United States. So, and, um, and, and you, you can see what came after me, you know, so, and, um, and, and, and that's something good, you know, it's, it's, we grown as a country and we're getting better and, you know, and there's just so much going on in the in the soccer world right now in 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 US, and you see it with MLS Next Pro now and everything what we develop and what we get you know into, it's it's, it's just developing. And and I said this already in 2014 when I retired. I said that um from the when I retired, I said when I came back to the states that I said that if we smart enough here in the United States that we can create something really really big and we can be one day the soccer world in the the number one because of the talent you have, the cities you have, the owners you have, you have people now, you've seen they're going over and buying the Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester United. So you have people who are interested in the game and it's just a matter of time that they invest the money to the teams here in the United States. So, and I said this already in 2014 and, and a lot of stuff is coming exactly what, how I said it, just back in the days people said, he's crazy, he's out of his mind. <laughs> I mean, I get asked the question just, in public a fair amount of like, will the US men win a World Cup in our lifetime? And, you know, I realize you can make a reasonable argument for yes or for no. One thing I do tell them is in 2002, the US got to the quarterfinals and, and outplayed Germany and, and could have gotten even farther in that tournament. And your team got out of uh, the group in 2014. What? Be honest. What do you, if, if someone asks you that question, will the U.S. men win a World Cup in our lifetime? What do you think? 100%. Why not? Why not? It's, it's, but it, you know, it, to, to just win a World Cup, it's, it's not just, you know, the teams we see right now. It's the, the, the basics. We have to look what is coming, you know, what this, what, uh, how strong is our youth systems, how we develop our youth system, what we're doing in there. You can see now, the market getting so strong that you have all these Europe teams coming over and trying to get our young talent, you know, to get them already earlier to Europe so that they can develop and be over there. So it, that means that the whole package is it's starting to develop and getting, you know, more, more um, recognized in, in the world. And that means something, you know, so of course we can, can, can win the world cup at one point. And, um, no, and, and I'm sitting here and say, yes, and that should be, our number one priority to say at one point we want to win the world cup we not just want to be part of it we are a big big country and if you look what i said if you go to the youth systems and we we, we are unbeating right now with the u19s and we we played england we played 
top teams and, and they had way more the talent from the paper on the name because the kids played in, in big teams. But if you look at the quality of the players we have in the youth system, there's more and more coming. And don't understand, the, the, I think our first team is the youngest team going to the World Cup. So that's something too. They will stick together for the last couple of years and you would just add pieces to it to make them maybe better after the World Cup. So, and then see if we get the best, best tournament in the biggest party back in our country, what can happen? Jermaine Jones is now an assistant coach for the U.S. under-19 men's national team. He's also a TV analyst and the holder of a UEFA pro coaching license, among other things. Jermaine, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, my man. Now, here's my book talk interview with Joshua Cloak. With all the great new soccer books coming out around the Men's World Cup, we're starting a new thing that I'm calling Book Talk. These are 10-minute or so conversations about soccer books with their authors. Today, we've got Joshua Cloak of The Athletic, whose terrific new book is called The Voyagers, the Canadian Men's Soccer Team's Quest for the World Cup. Joshua, congrats on the book, and thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Just yeah, hearing it out loud, it's it's still kind of surreal. You know what it's like when when your book comes out at the most opportune time. So it's great. Yeah, it's a great feeling to be done with a book I found over the years. The the process of writing not always the easiest, but you do feel good at the end. The talking to people, the reporting for me was always the most fun. Like when you go into a project saying, I wanna discover something that very few people know about. I wanna, you know find information that's going to help people learn about this topic that I think they're going to be super excited about. That stuff is really exciting. The transcribing is way less exciting. The, the trying to jam it all into, you know, the, the 234 pages is, is a little less exciting. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, you know what it's like. And my hope is that people pick up this book ahead of the world cup. Uh, because I think there's going to be a lot of Canadians in particular who are going to go, wow, okay, we qualified, we're here, we're at the dance, now what? Um, and and my hope, because this is not a normal thing. You know, we were chatting about U.S. soccer before, but like this is not a, a normal thing. Uh, and I don't also, I don't think it's going to be a once in a lifetime occurrence, but it's not normal. And I, I really hope that people appreciate that for Canada to get back to the World Cup, you know, they were there in 1986 to get back. Um, a lot of people had to push a very heavy rock up the hill. Um, and I think this book tries to tell, you know, the story of, of those people, right? Yeah, I've read the book. I enjoyed it. You've chosen to tell the story of the Canadian men's team by telling the stories of people in it over the last couple of decades. How did you come to that decision about how you wanted to approach the book? I mean, one of my favorite soccer books or one of my favorite books, full stop, is Raf Honingstein's Das Reboot. Um, and what I took away from, from Raf's book um, was that the, the people behind the scenes that don't often get a lot of credit are just as pivotal to a national team's overhaul uh, and I'm not saying Canada went through what Germany went through, but that's kind of what I took away from it was that's what I learned, you know, being a fan of the German national team. Um, you know, my grandparents came over on a boat from Germany uh, in 54. And, and so I got into them and I reading about them, I was like, wow, this is the stuff I didn't know about. This is what really gets me excited. And so I just kind of put myself in that space and said, if I was a, a fan or especially a new fan of the men's national team, 
What do I need to know? And I think it's easy, uh, and rightfully so, but it is easy to gravitate towards Alfonso Davies and John Herdman. They are the, going to be the people that everybody thinks about ahead of this World Cup. But it was a really messy, ugly time for the men's national team after they qualified for the World Cup. The 90s, the 2000s, 2010s, these were some dark, dark times. And I think if you look at the people that rescued the men's national team, and, and I'm talking about the coaches that embodied a new style of play, um, the players that showed up for Canada and set an example when they probably shouldn't have been and they gave up on a lot of real, genuine club opportunities. Um, the, the media that, that tried to bring this sport to the forefront in a way that, that nobody else would, because, you know, when you're talking about Canada, you're talking about hockey and hockey only. Um, so that was kind of my goal is to, I guess, to mimic Das, uh, you know, Das Reboot in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I, I hope I succeeded. I don't know. Yeah, no, let me tell you, you did from my perspective, um, Canada was the best team in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying over 14 games despite not having qualified for a World Cup since 1986. What are the main factors that went into that rise, in your opinion? I, I mean, again, I mentioned them um, a few minutes ago, but John Herdman, first of all, um, again, everybody will think of him in the World Cup and, and um, justifiably so, because he is the most important person to Canada's turnaround. Um, and I'm talking about getting players to buy into a structure, to a setup, to a team culture. Um, you know, a lot of stuff I learned for the book, he's he's fundraising for this national team. He's, he's kind of the be-all and end-all. Um, so he's a big reason why, obviously, having a, a generational player like Alfonso Davies is part of it, um, a big part of it, too. But I think, again, what I learned in, in reporting for the book is that, um, I mean, I, I knew this growing up in Canada and playing soccer, um, playing soccer in a hockey town, I, I should add. Um, there were literally thousands and thousands of kids playing soccer um, just for fun. And for years, soccer Kids, more kids played soccer than any other team sport in Canada. That changed in the 90s, right? Before that, it was it was hockey. But because of um, the rise of, of multiculturalism and diversity in Canada, which is a really, really important part, the rise of immigration, and I detailed that in the book, you know, past prime ministers just kind of opening the doors. You just see a wave of new interest in the game, and it just took years, years and years for the talent to kind of bubble up to the surface. So I think we're seeing a lot of that. Like I said, you know, Canada just opening their doors and, and making mm -hmm. multiculturalism and diversity literal government policies, right? These aren't just token things that, that we talk about and, and we bandy about. These are official government policies. And you see that in the way that um, you have dual nationals playing for Canada. You have so many, you know, Canadian national team players whose parents come from other countries. Um, that's important too. Um, and then finally, I, I think just it, it was a matter of all of those pieces coming together, but also it's important to know too. And, you know, I, when I talk to people for the book, I would just ask the question, why do you think they're here? And, and one answer I got a lot, perhaps more than any other was, MLS coming to Canada and they're finally being a professional pathway in a way there wasn't before. After Canada qualified for the World Cup in 1986, we had the CSL, the Canadian Soccer League, which lasted six seasons. And 
you know, there wasn't enough money for the league to survive. But once you have real owners that create MLS teams and then there's academies and there's a real pathway for players to succeed. I mean, look at this men's national team and all the players that started in MLS, some still in MLS. That was really important to get into those big three Canadian markets and provide kind of a, a pathway. How do you think Canada can do at this World Cup? I mean, first of all, again, it's surreal that people are even asking that question. <laughs> I mean that like, you know, it, it, a year and a half ago, it was just, wow, do we even have a shot at qualifying? And now people are genuinely asking if, if Canada can get out of the group. One thing I can say for sure is this team is going to go after games. They're not going to the World Cup to bunker. It, it was interesting when you watch Canada through the final round of qualifying, what made them so successful was they had multiple tactical looks. Right when they played the U.S. in Nashville, they they bunkered a bit. They they tried to get a result. Um, then there were games that they completely went after it. And then there were some times where they did a little bit of both in the game. And that tactical fluidity was a hallmark of John Herdman. And and what I learned is that in the immediate aftermath of World Cup qualifying, John Herdman debriefed with all of his players, and he asked them, "How do you think?" we had the most success and how do you think we're going to get this success in qualifying to translate to the world cup and to a man all of them said when we are at our best we go after games we play with pace we get the ball forward because the strength of this team is in their attack we get the ball forward as quickly as possible and what was interesting so i almost feel like the way they played against uruguay in their last friendly where they lost admittedly but boy, did they take the game to Uruguay in a way we haven't seen a men's national team play in a very long time. So to me, it was kind of the culmination of, of qualifying to see just how they tried to dictate the tempo, how they wanted to have possession. I think a lot of people in Canada said they're going to go into that game and just try and get a result. Not the case. So um, they'll play front foot soccer. It could hurt them, right? It, they, they could be exposed on the counterattack against super talented teams, but I think they're going to put themselves in the best position possible to get results. Um, I don't think four points is out of the question. Is that enough to go through? Uh, could be tough, but I think they have enough pace to to try and run Croatia, an aging-ish team, run them into the ground, sets up for a must-win game against Morocco, which a very talented team, but I do think they can win. Whether or not four points is enough to go through, we'll see. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting group, and I think one of the clearest examples when you have Belgium and Croatia in particular. These are two semifinalists from the last World Cup, and yet they are two teams that, if you really do value the World Cup as a young man's tournament, that Canada would be this young team, young ish at least with some young stars and and then belgium and croatia maybe some concerns about maybe being a little too old and i and this group maybe more than other groups is where we're going to get a bit of a verdict on that that's why we watch this tournament because weird things happen every four years really strange things happen every four years and i think canada is in a really advantageous spot because um they can go to a World Cup and play this front foot attacking style of soccer and not worry that if the results don't come, 
there will be calls for their heads in the streets the way that that a lot of other national teams and and perhaps Canada will get to that place and I think 2026 is something that a lot of people in Canadian soccer have circled as a time when that's when we need to see a Canadian team compete and get results that's when we need to build on this success but right now I think Canada is in a great place the men's team is in a great place because they can genuinely go to the World Cup and I know it's a cliche, man. I, I, I know it is, but I believe that they can go and play with no fear. And that could get results that they, they could be punished in a lot of ways because of that, right? Playing against really, really structured teams like Belgium. But to go there, to just be able to entertain fans, to garner new fans in Canada, because that's a, a lot of what this tournament is going to be for them. Um, to be able to do that really, really lines up well for them if they can let's just say they they can go and they get two draws but they can't be accused of giving up i mean that that's a success too right um so we'll see the book is called the voyagers the canadian men's soccer team's quest for the world cup the author is joshua cloak joshua thanks so much for coming on the show Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Jermaine Jones and Joshua Cloak, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.